0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well and that all of you are having a good week. Uh, Hard to believe we are already halfway into another week. And like I said uh, the last time I was on the air, it is hard to believe that this is the last full week of the month of March. I don't know where the time has gone, but uh, it has gone by very quick. Earlier today, I just remembered that, uh, tomorrow, March 30th, I believe it's, uh, tomorrow the 30th or March 31st, I, I do know that, um, late March marks the 42nd anniversary of the attempted assassination on Ronald Reagan. I was, uh, just shy of two years of age when it happened, but I do find it hard to believe that it's been almost, uh, 42 years or right about 42 years when that, um, incident happened and i have watched uh, documentaries on the um near assassinate assassination attempt of ronald reagan and it truly is a miracle that he survived that uh, assassination attempt i also think it's uh still incredible to this day knowing that um the uh, secret service agent whom um who made that um, call, that is, a call to uh, change plans after uh, they had gotten the president into his motorcade. The plan right away was to go back to the White House. Uh, The late Secret Service agent, Jerry Parr, he died uh, eight years ago. He was in his mid-80s, but at the time, he uh, was not even supposed to have been assigned that day to, um, protect the president. Someone else, I believe, had either called out sick or had something else come up at the last minute, so the Secret Service had to get, uh, Jerry Parr, uh, in. He was still with the agency at the time, but they brought him in to, um, protect the president as part of that inner circle, where uh, or I should say the elite, um, group who uh, really uh, gets up close with the president in terms of providing that inner circle of protection. So it was Jerry Parr who um, examined the president while in the car because he basically had to um, slam, Reagan, slam Ronald Reagan into the car, uh, and thank heavens that another uh, Secret Service agent um, basically shielded himself in front of the window of the motorcade, because that um, Secret Service agent, uh, Tim McCarthy, I want to say his name was, he um, He basically uh, put his own life on the line to protect that of the president, but of course that's what Secret Service agents or officers are trained to do. So Jerry Parr examined Ronald Reagan and saw that some, saw that some things weren't right with the president, so he told the driver, look, we need to change course and get him to uh, the nearest hospital because he is uh, bleeding. Not just bleeding from his mouth, but but the uh, bullet that got Ronald Reagan, it um, penetrated through um, the window, and it um, was about an inch away from his heart. And, you know, it's just uh, amazing to think just how close Ronald Reagan, on one hand, it's scary to think how close he came to dying but had jerry parr not made that decision had he not said to to the driver look we've got to get to the hospital and if they had taken ronald reagan back to the white house he would have died he would have died from uh, internal bleeding Um, so you know there are things that we can't take for granted in terms of not just a history but what could have happened had the um had the course been different, you know, I remember my dad telling me where he was when he found out that Ronald Reagan had been shot, and my dad said to me, you know, Kirk, it was, I was having to relive everything all over because 18 years earlier, I was in, uh, I was in the 10th grade when um, hearing over the loud that President Kennedy had uh, been shot and was pronounced dead, and you could literally hear pins drop. And, of course, for my parents, uh, the assassination of President Kennedy was their 9-11. But, you know, here my dad said 18 years later, I thought I was going to have to relive the same thing over. And what do you know, Ronald Reagan made it through. But yet, it is very hard to believe just how close he could have come to dying had uh, the late Secret Service agent Jerry Parr not made... um, had not made the right call when he did and let alone had he not been on duty who's not to say you know I shouldn't sound negative but who's to say that the other agent who ended up calling out what if he had not made the right call there again we would have been looking at a uh, history from a different uh, from a different angle so it's those things that we've got to be uh, reminded of and I'm not, you know, trying to sound political here or not, folks. But if there, but if I could pick one president that I've lived under in my lifetime who was my favorite, it was none other than Ronald Reagan. But uh, that's just me. Um, but he made, um, he did a lot of good things for America. And as the late Margaret Thatcher said, who was uh, prime minister of England from 1979 to 1990, she said that Ronald Reagan won the Cold War without having to fire a shot and how true it is. But, you know, again, I'm not trying to get political, but but it's just those things that we, you know, need to be reminded of when taking a step back in time. Now, um, I do believe it's uh, time to refocus our uh, energies on where we're going to be going uh, in the next uh, podcast segment episode uh, to the Boston Massacre of Family History by Serena Zabin. In this episode, we're going to uh, discuss how... Um, British officers uh, um, counter-responded per the um, pamphlet that was um, written up on the American side, you know, the um, horrid massacre. We have to, uh, in other words, we're gonna have to find out if the British uh, counter-responded with a uh, pamphlet of their own that would be uh, what we would call not just pro-British but uh, pro-military, pro-troops. Uh, We also have um, to—we will also uh, determine uh, whether or not um, relations uh, are stable. In other words, are relations still going to be stable between a majority of the soldiers and the townspeople? In other words, we might need to find out whether or not um, weddings, or I should say unions, are taking place um, where families are still coming together and can still— learn to put aside um, political differences or they can basically learn to put aside um, differences that um, that uh, led up to um, what occurred on March the 5th and we also need to figure out um, we also need to figure out uh, some other things like for example um, you know given that um, Captain Thomas Preston and half a dozen soldiers are behind bars. We've got to figure out um, whether or not they will have the right to counsel. And we also will uh, need to figure out um, the current status of families whom whose um, loved ones are behind bars. In other words, we might have to figure out, okay, for some of the uh, soldiers whom are behind bars, are they married? And if so, do they have children? Given the situation that has now just unfolded in the uh, days after uh, March 5th, how are families going to be impacted going forward? And not just impacted, but are they going to be receiving any kind of uh, governmental assistance? So let's uh, begin with... Um, with our first uh, lead-off question for this uh, podcast uh, segment episode uh, to the Boston uh, Massacre, of family history by Serena Zabin. So here we go. Did Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple and General Thomas Gage each write letters expressing concerns about the American version or the story behind the night of March 5th through the summary titled a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston. So, do you all think Lieutenant Colonel uh, William Dalrymple and General Thomas Gage were, in fact, writing letters expressing concerns about this um, American pamphlet that that basically is accusing uh, the British troops under the command of uh, Captain Thomas Preston? The pamphlet is basically saying that... um, Captain Preston had ordered the troops to fire into a crowd of innocent civilians whom were protesting peacefully. Well, uh, the answer is yes. For Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dalrymple, his concerns centered around the fact that the American version, or rather the American side of this um, incident, would promote a heavy bias to where the public saw the British troops as the party at fault, without mentioning their full side to the story. So, in other words, the American pamphlet, in the eyes of Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple, is biased. It uh, doesn't tell; it doesn't give you the whole story. It, it only tells you what those whom say X, Y, and Z happened. It, it, it's a story that uh, basically is saying that oh, um, the British. They are at fault for it. They've been antagonizing us for some time, and it just got to the point where we couldn't take it anymore. Where we started hurling objects at them, and and they just decided, without without warning us, that they were going to fire on us. So that that to that to me would probably be the best description of how the Americans are um, approaching this. That that is the people of Boston, I should say, whom are. whom are what we would call uh, anti-British troops, um, presence of of British troops having that anti-stance. Whereas for General Thomas Gage, uh, the primary question pertained to whether the army, most notably the commanding officers, or in this case we could say there was only one commanding officer uh, who uh, supervised uh, the troops even though he did not give them the order to fire. But it's not just one officer here, folks. It's the presence. This involves other officers. Um, So for General Gage, the primary question pertained to whether the Army, most notably the commanding officers, had acted in a proper manner based upon what what led up prior to and come the evening of March 5, 1770. And I think it's fair to say that we've already established that there had not been any um there had not been anything like what happened on march the fifth March the fifth seventeen seventy. There had not been anything prior to it, although there had been the occasional scuffle, brawl, which on a scale of one to five probably would have been a one. The closest thing that that we um, can say did occur. Just less than two weeks before March fifth, was an unruly mob going after uh, Ebenezer Richardson, the customs collector, whom was um, whom was uh, defending uh, another loyalist or a man of uh, pro-British uh, uh, loyalty, being that of uh, Theophilus uh, Lily. Uh, Ebenezer Richardson. His home, you know, was attacked by the angry mob, and that included that um, 11-year-old Christopher Sideair. Ebenezer Richardson fires into the crowd and sadly kills the 11-year-old. So I think it'd be fair to say that that incident right there did have, um, that was just the 101 spark. The To me, what went beyond 101 was what happened a couple of nights before the 5th when uh, a British soldier had asked, um, one of the rope makers, if he if there was uh, any you know part time work, and that rope maker said, "Well, yeah, I've got something for you. Why don't you clean out my latrine or my latrine, meaning my um, outhouse?" And then that's when things really started, um, starting fu- started to fuel even more. So that definitely went beyond 101. And then of course, uh, private uh, Hugh Montgomery, whom is one of the uh, six soldiers in jail, he had said. Uh, openly, that um, in a matter of a short time there will be blood shed. In other words, there wouldn't be any going back. Once blood gets shed, then those whom have uh, instigated this fight will have to pay dearly for their mistakes. So, um, for General Gage, yes, the primary question really is whether or not the Army, most notably the commanding officers, had acted in a proper manner based upon what led up prior to and on the evening of March 5th, 1770. In a short amount of time, folks, knowing just how much changed, uh, General Gage also wanted to make it clear that his officers below him were, in fact, capable of controlling the troops under their command. In other words, General Gage wants wants the greater public to know that not all of these troops are... Um, are troublemakers. Not all these troops are out to get the public. That is the the greater public of Boston. Matter of fact, if Gen, you know General Gage probably does not like the idea that many troops have married uh, local Bostonian women. But if but if he had to, he'd probably go as far as saying, you know, many troops have married uh, local Bostonian women, and they have not objected. Their families haven't objected. But it hasn't led to any riots. Through the aid, or I should say assistance from acting governor Thomas Hutchinson, including a sympathetic uh, justice of the peace, Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple assembled 25 written formal statements on a boat bound for England just one week earlier ahead of time, given the town of Boston was still in the process of collecting of collecting um, remaining accounts. You know, uh, formal written statements explaining what, you know, happened prior to and on the night of March 5th. How did the British counteract in writing their response to what had already been written by the Americans being the uh, short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston? How did the British counteract Officers Hugh Dixon and David St. Clair, including a handful of other British officers, partook in composing an account, or I should say a version, known as the following, in quotations, folks, A Fair Account of the Late Unhappy Disturbance. It's an interesting title, A Fair Account of the Late Unhappy Disturbance. It it was a pro-military pamphlet. Others have dubbed uh, the title or the version that the British came up with in shorter, um, in shorter, uh, what do you call layman terms, as the ungrateful event, the event that you know should never have happened, the event that could have been avoided, the event that, yes, could have been avoided had uh, the protesters not gone to such unnecessary extremes. Despite written uh, formal statements in support of the army, making it to England first, the pro-military pamphlet, folks, did not get widespread recognition, nor did it receive widespread distribution. Unlike the pro-colonial short narrative, which got to England first, before pro-military depositions could go about getting published. Well, is it fair to say that the vast majority of England's population does not like the military? No. Matter of fact, many of them, many of, um, many, uh, what do you call it, everyday commoners, you know, people of the lower ranks of uh, English society, and it might be fair to say you've got those of the uh, middle class and upper middle class who also don't like uh, the presence of the military because they view the military as a standing army, that is constantly present even in times of peace when they see this present presence of an army is not something that should not have to be existing in times of peace. Well, remember folks, even in times of peace, people can protest, people can be unhappy, people can express their displeasure at the government. And so if it gets bad to the point where property is being vandalized, looted, people's lives are in danger, not just between protesters and troops, but perhaps protesters amongst one another. So therefore, even in times of peace, folks, there does need to be a presence of troops, but only when it's necessary to quell any uh, violence that has um, the means of going beyond um, 101 um, assembling and petitioning. June of 1770 saw the first sets of written formal statements on both sides um, officially leave from uh, Boston for London, and in the summer and fall of 1770, both pamphlets emerged in a handful of London literary magazines. Less known to be likely now was the fact that relations between the troops and the townspeople, given they were once good, and decent are now the exact opposite given in the three weeks from mid-february to the start of march the killing of 11 year old christopher Sider at the hands of customs official ebenezer richardson on february the 22nd to the shooting 11 days later march 5th had now forever replaced any existing peace. instead with conflict and separation so in other words there already was tension there already was some tension between a, a part of a uh, Bostonian society whom probably you know was that group whom was never satisfied with anything though especially those whom did not want to pay uh taxes on the townshend duties and 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 yes they did have a right obviously to express their displeasure at the taxes, but they just did not like the fact that troops were being brought in to restore order. And of course, for that sector of uh, Bostonian society, they also saw it as another um, measure behind um, improper consent. In other words, we didn't have anybody represent us on our behalf 3,000 miles across the ocean to say, hey, it's not right to be sending troops 3,000 miles in the opposite direction just to put down Um, unrest that um, has not spread to other colonies, unrest that has not spread, say, 50 miles outside the confines of the greater Boston area. But at the same time, if nobody's dying, then why should you all be coming over? But in the eyes of Parliament, they have a good defensive response. Well, you all have been attacking the customs collectors. You've been burning their houses down. You've been threatening them, not only just the the customs officials themselves, you've been probably threatening their families, and you've been forcing them to take oaths where they will um, uh, renege their allegiance to the crown and instead uh, be on the side of what we would think of now as patriots. In other words, you will not um, try uh, to make any attempt to uh, collect money from ordinary townsfolks, and if you try it again, then we might just hang you. So there are um, all sorts of stipulations here that um, that work for you as well as against you, but nonetheless, yes, whatever peace did exist is a lot more fragile now than it was just before um, the events that occurred on February twenty second and March the fifth of seventeen seventy. Now, regardless of where one was willing to choose their sides within the greater conflict following the night of March 5th, members to the greater public, they all agreed that one question had to be resolved without fail. What do you think that question has what do you think that question ought to be? That, that has to be resolved without fail. So let's why don't we all think of ourselves right now as detectives? You know, we've got to figure out, you know, various motives. The who, the what, the why. But if there's one um, question that's plaguing us, it's the following. It, it, it's the following here. Did Boston's townspeople or the troops within the 29th Regiment afoot go about partaking in actions whose outcomes led to the final straw breaking the camel's back. In other words, what was it that finally broke that camel's back? You know, yes, there were some issues prior to, but that was just 101 stuff. What caused the camel's back to break that went beyond the 101 um, grievance? Well, in other words... What was that final spark which uh, led to the existing state of peace to completely crumble, where relations beforehand would never return, or be the same? So it, it's those, it's those questions right there, or it's it's that particular question right there that uh, has to be uh, resolved before this is all said and done with, uh, especially since you know. The town of Boston doesn't want to have another incident like what happened on March the 5th. But I think it'd be fair to say that by the time a trial arrives, that hopefully that question can really be resolved in a courtroom of law. While those soldiers accused of having purposely shot the protesters remain behind bars, The rest of Boston went on with their lives as best as possible. Both civilians and soldiers, most notably the soldiers of the 29th Regiment, are greatly impacted by the shooting and its aftermath." So, there again, it's just another reminder of how we need to to be constantly reminding ourselves that not all of the soldiers that came to Boston Not all British soldiers that came over to Boston were monsters. Not all of them were out to kill innocent civilians. Many of them had, had in fact, by this point married and and had blended in well to the uh, greater Boston society. Many of them were simply getting burnt out with serving in the British military and didn't see any problems with desertion unlike officers above, whom detested desertion. Soldiers of the 29th Regiment did not completely sever all personal relations and interactions with the town of Boston, despite having already gotten um, relocated to Castle William. Now, let's focus here on uh, two of the six soldiers whom are in jail being Privates Hugh Montgomery and James Hardigan. Are both of these uh, men, Privates Hugh Montgomery and James Hardigan, are they married men? Yes, they are. And given that they are both married men, and given that they have been placed behind bars as a result of what happened on March the 5th, their wives currently remained in Boston, including at least a half, half a dozen other women from the 29th Regiment, half a dozen being six, so it would be fair to say that we've got at least eight wives whom are living in the, um, in the town of Boston still. Despite the soldiers being removed from the town of Boston, the opposite had happened with women and children, whose numbers remained uh, steady. In other words, the number of women and children, well, yes, we can say that there were uh, women and children whom did leave Boston to go uh, to, say, Castle William from the 29th Regiment. And then, yes, there were women and children whose husbands were in the 14th Regiment, who um, left as well to go outside the heart of, uh, the, of the town of Boston. While all of that is good, there still are a good number, or good numbers of women and children whom are uh, still living in the town of Boston. So here's the bigger dilemma, folks. That big um, dilemma matter has to do with how to go about supporting those uh, families whom are still living in, in the town of Boston. Who's going to support them? And who's going to uh, bear the burden of having to support them? You know, you know in other words, are my taxpayer dollars going to go towards having to support outsiders living in the town of Boston just so that they can um, make it by each day? Well, uh, here we um, go with finding out a little bit more information. We have a fellow by the name of Robert Love. He is a representative from Boston's local government board. He went as far as obtaining to recording more than 40 families of soldiers still residing in Boston after uh, the shooting from March the 5th. Forty might not seem like the biggest number, but to me, that's a pretty um, high number, knowing that he found 40 families of soldiers still residing in Boston. That may be a good thing, but but if you were in Robert Love's shoes, what do you think would have been the hardest thing to have to do? Robert Love had to go to all of these families And he had to advise them all that if they were destitute, aka poor, the town of Boston had no duties, or let alone commitments, obligations, to pay those families any means of relief. So in other words, the town of Boston, if if you are destitute and poor, the town of Boston is not going to be handing you out, is is not going to be providing you with relief. Government assistance, for example, like in the form of a welfare uh, check or, of course, this program didn't evolve until uh, Franklin Roosevelt became president. It was known as, um, I believe it was AFDC, the Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and of course times were very severe back then. A lot of people, um, you know, more people were living on farms than they were um, in the cities, but a lot of people lost their homes and because they lost their homes they obviously need some greater means of governmental assistance and that's where the program aid to families with dependent children came into play so so i so back in the 18th century there is no such thing as that as a program of that caliber and of course you know yes we have learned already that many churches did welcome british soldiers into their congregations where uh, weddings did happen, where people learned to put aside their differences and actually uh, came to uh, celebrate the uh, union between a local Bostonian woman and a British soldier. But here at the same time, even churches can be in dilemmas as well as to whether or not they are willing to risk providing for more than just one family. It's one thing to provide... And look after for those who are destitute. But if you're going to be looking after anywhere from say five to ten British families still living in Boston and needing assistance, how is that going to impact the rest of the congregation, who may not share the same views? In other words, it could be it could lead to such bad tensions to where those whom those whom are um, let's say have no um, british um, connection in terms of a british soldier marrying a daughter in the family how is it going to make them feel that in other words are they going to feel that they're being uh, overlooked or 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 is the uh, parishioner playing favorites there again folks the, these are uh, these are tough times these are not pleasant times yes we may have gotten the troops removed from the town of boston But that doesn't mean everything else has um, gone away. So, yes, it's one thing to be destitute and poor, but now realizing that the town of Boston, per uh, Robert Love, has no duties nor commitments or obligations to pay all of those families any means of relief, government assistance in the form of obtaining welfare, welfare aid. Families, though, if this does make any of you feel better families weren't immediately asked nor forced to leave right away. So it wasn't like they were getting an eviction notice where they had to be out of their homes by week's end. But for Robert Love, what he had to do, because if he didn't do it, then he probably would have been in, um, he wouldn't have probably been in uh, good grace, perhaps with the community, but also amongst those uh, British family still living in Boston but Robert Love had to uh, advise that he had to advise those families those 40 families that the town had no duties or obligation in assisting them regardless of of the matter as for Elizabeth Hartigan and Isabella Montgomery each of them stayed put in Boston despite their husbands uh, being locked up in jail And yes, as I mentioned earlier, not all families were immediately asked nor forced to leave right away. So, it's also fair to say that not all families were left out to dry either. I can give you a good example here of a fellow by the name of Private Edward McCarthy. He was residing at Castle William. He wrote to his wife and daughter living in a rented home on Boston's south end warning the two of them that they would not be getting support or aid from the town luckily private mccarthy's wife and daughter got sent to a poorhouse where they were properly looked after for an extended period of time so that should tell us right there that um modifications were made to ensure that um people who whom knew that um that it would probably be a short matter of time before they knew that that they had to make the next step and um, going somewhere else that they had some uh, plan of action but i do have to wonder for uh, if private mccarthy had um, if he had some kind of connection who knows but the bottom line is that there were um, that there were some good um, outcomes for families living in Boston, knowing that uh, that the town of Boston would not have to be, ob- would no longer be obligated to uh, require having to uh, pay for their um, general um, welfare, being despite what had transpired on the night of March fifth, seventeen seventy, were most of uh, Boston's people willing to sever all ties between the townspeople. So, in other words, despite what had transpired on the night of March 5th, 1770, were most of Boston's people willing to sever all ties uh, between townspeople and the military? That's what I meant to say, folks. Uh, earlier, pardon me. It turns out, folks, that no, um, the majority of Boston's people were not were were not willing to sever all ties amongst the townspeople and the military. Many soldiers remained interested in getting. Uh, or I should say, in attracting the eyes of young women to come over their way. Marriages between civilian women and military men were honored from March 5th, 1770, uh, the evening of the shooting, into June of 1772. That's quite an extended period of time there, folks. I mean, and we're still, even in June 1772, folks, we're still three years shy from firing the first shots around the world at lexington and concord local bostonian women continued marrying soldiers even in the weeks after the shooting maybe they wanted to send a message to say hey yes what happened on the night of march 5th was was a tragic thing but at the same time we can't go around and blame all of the british troops in other words not all of Britain's troops presence, present here in Boston are monsters. Not all of them are out to um, inflict harm amongst the greater public of Boston and perhaps anywhere else where they might be stationed in America down the road if it had to come to that um, matter or if it had to come to that um, option. So yes, these marriages are are to be seen as a sign that even in the midst of um, of an unfortunate circumstance, the town of Boston can still function. It can still function short and long term, knowing that there are uh, British soldiers and uh, Bostonian women, including those um, including those uh, ladies' uh, families, whom are all willing to put aside um, differences and personal feelings to ensure that that unions do happen, marriages happen, for better or for worse, not just short-term, but long-term. Although marriages between uh, local Bostonian women and soldiers remain steady, this doesn't mean that the marriages themselves weren't always immune from um, moments of hostility. And here's a good one right here. We take Elizabeth Hillman. She is a Bostonian woman, she was married to Jesse Lindley, a 32 year old um, private serving in the 14th Regiment. The two married in the summer of 1770. Shortly after the wedding, uh, Private Jesse Lindley gave a written formal statement which claimed that he and another soldier were harassed in the same manner like what happened to Private Hugh White. In the fall of 1769, Private Lindley and another soldier were on guard duty when a group of Bostonians hurled insults to hitting the guardsmen with clubs. Like Hugh White, both guardsmen had called out for help. However, whereas Hugh White got immediate backup relief, Private Lindley and his comrade did not get help until the raucous crowd was told to disperse. So... Luckily for Hugh White, he was very fortunate that he got the backup right away, because if he hadn't, I think, sadly, Hugh White might have actually been a, been a, uh, an actual fatality in terms of a British soldier dying at the hands of the uh, raucous crowd. So, um, the marriage between... Um, Elizabeth Hillman and uh, Private Jesse Lindley went smooth to where church records did not label Jesse Lindley as an outsider. The records indicated that Lindley and Hillman, both of Boston. Never know sometimes how um, when luck will be to your, um, on your side, even when it's least expected. Merchant John Rowe, it just so happens that the, uh, that merchant John Rowe, whom we've uh, talked about quite a bit, it just so happens, folks, that he is friends with Captain Thomas Preston. And he's been friends with Captain Thomas Preston since October September of 1768. Despite Captain Preston being in jail after the March 5th shooting, John Rowe still viewed Preston as a friend. He even went as far as visiting him in jail while the four companies of the 29th Regiment began packing to set sail for Castle Island, which would become their new uh, lodging quarters. Well, here's another another unique element, folks. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that we were always told that after the shooting had happened that nobody wanted... That everybody just flat out hated the British troops. They even hated the commander. They hated anything England. But what we're coming to realize now, folks, is that there were many people in Boston who did get along with the troops, who treated them in as good of a manner as there was. Yes, there were those who didn't like the troops. But it's probably fair to say that those whom did not like the troops also found plenty of other things to gripe about as well. It's that sector, obviously, of a society whom, no matter what you do to try to please them, they'll always be persuaded in thinking that they're being badly governed. That's what Thomas Hutchinson said. He basically said that it it, it doesn't take much to persuade those whom uh whom are... All, whom feel that they are being badly governed um, to do such things in retaliation. I, I I can't remember the full quote of it, but basically it doesn't take much to persuade people that they are being badly governed. Even in 1770, it didn't take much. Yes, there were reasons why, but yet at the same time there were some other reasons that um, probably didn't need to happen as to why there were those whom truly felt that that they were being badly governed, when in fact, it wasn't necessarily 100% bad. So, it is great to know that, you know, John Rowe is still friends with Captain Preston, and perhaps for uh, Merchant John Rowe, this should be our, um, our reminder that Merchant John Rowe is behind uh, Captain Preston 100%. He believes that Captain Preston ought to be considered innocent until proven guilty in a courtroom of law. Captain Preston was surrounded in jail, folks, by roughly, I found this interesting, he he didn't have his own jail cell, folks. Uh, So, in other words, he didn't get entitlements, uh, he wasn't getting top-of-the-line anything. Captain Preston is surrounded in jail by roughly six debtors. So, six inmates are debtors, and 21 other inmates whom awaited trial for theft. So, that's the big crime, folks. If you're in jail, there's a very good likelihood that you're in jail because you've committed a crime known as theft. Now, back in colonial times, folks, did people get meals brought to them if you were in jail? No. Food nor beverage was not automatically provided to those languishing behind bars. If you wanted food or beverage, somebody else usually brought it to you. But it was not the uh, the guardsmen. It wasn't any um official uh, whom uh, worked at the public jail, or as, uh, or as in Williamsburg, Virginia, they call it the public gaol. So. Keep in mind, folks, that uh, that food was not provided to you from within the uh, jail facilities. It had to be brought from out from an outside source. So, yes, for those whom languished behind bars, many uh, prisoners, yes, had to turn to others for bringing them provisions deemed essential—not just food, but clothing, uh, and not just clothing, but if it's cold outside, how about a blanket to stay warm? The Boston jail is where people were held prior to their trials. Now is it fair to say that incarceration was, is it fair to say that incarceration was seldomly used as a means of punishment in the 18th century? Yes, it is very fair to say that people, you know, nobody spent um, two to three years behind bars very seldomly did that happen if you were found guilty of theft depending on the colony that you lived in if it was your second offense well guess what you you would have you would have hung they would have hung you um i know that doesn't sound nice but more often than not uh, depending on where which colony you were in i know especially in virginia that if you were found guilty of theft and didn't learn your lesson from the first go-around you were hung you had pretty much used up your lifelines. You know, being branded uh, was bad enough, but you also had to recite um, a biblical verse. or you were given, I don't know if I should tell you all this now, but I'll, if I do, I'll certainly remind you all about this uh, phrase again uh, before this um, series is done. It was called Benefit of the Clergy. So regardless of where you lived in, in the Thirteen Colonies, you would have been given what's called benefit of the clergy, where you had to recite a biblical verse from the Bible, and if you had shown enough remorse and had been willing to learn from the mistake, then you wouldn't have been completely forgiven, but you would have been um, um, semi-forgiven by the courts, but they would have said to you, now look, you've been branded, This ought to serve as a reminder of what you've done, because you will have to carry this um, burden with you for the rest of your life. But if you are back here again, and you commit the same acts, commit the same act uh, in terms of uh, an action pertaining to theft, it will result in um, your being executed. So, you know, it's one thing to get in trouble with the law, but you better learn from it uh, the first time around because second chances are very, very hard to come by. So, yes, incarceration is seldomly used as a means of punishment, but if it was used, it was only in cases or situations where uh, the defendants were required to pay outstanding fines, including court and incarceration costs. And we should keep in mind for those whom are in debt that many of times they often stayed in jail until they could actually pay the debts off. Here's another question to think about. Uh, Shortly after turning himself over to Justices of the Peace, what did Captain Preston realize he needed right away? He needed a lawyer, folks. He needed legal counsel to represent him and the accused soldiers whom had fired into the crowd. Now, remember, folks, in 18th century times when you... If you turn yourself in, or if you've been arrested, there is no such thing as the Miranda Rule. Named after Ernesto Miranda, uh, whom back in the 1960s uh, he had committed a crime, but uh, he had not been given uh, proper rights for why he was being charged. So because of what happened to Ernesto Miranda, we we have here in the United States um, your Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and be used against you in a courtroom of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot um, hire an attorney, one will be provided uh, for you. So, so basically, we don't have any such things as uh, Miranda rules uh, in the 18th century. But nonetheless, you know, Captain Preston and his uh, soldiers do have the right to be uh, represented in a courtroom of law. March 6th, 1770, the day after the shooting, uh, John Adams was at his law office. He received an unexpected visit from a fellow named James Forrest, a Bostonian merchant, whom had personally gotten to know um, multiple Army officers since their arrival from October of 1768. James Forrest pleaded passionately to John Adams given two other lawyers, being Josiah Quincy Jr. and Robert Auschmuty, weren't willing to represent Captain Preston unless Adams willfully agreed to join the legal team. Robert Auschmuty was viewed as a strong supporter of the government, whereas Josiah Quincy Jr. was committed to uh, the Liberty Party, a.k.a. the Sons of Liberty. He is also the brother to Samuel Quincy, who is uh, Massachusetts's solicitor general? John Adams, in the end, folks, um, agreed to uh, take on. He agreed to um, serve as um, as defense lawyer for uh, Captain uh, Thomas Preston and the sick, and the soldiers whom have been uh, who have been accused of firing into the crowd. And, of course, in the eyes of um, those who did not like the soldiers, they, they obviously would like to view it as a premeditated murder or as an act of uh, premeditation. So John, John Adams, we can, we can thank um, James Forrest. He is the man who um, heavily persuaded John Adams to um, take on uh, Captain Preston and the soldiers because, and the reason for that is because James Forrest pleaded ruthlessly not so much for John Adams to take on this case of defending the accused, but for the well-being of the uh, accused. In other words, James Forrest, like John Adams, James Forrest isn't a lawyer, he's not a lawyer like John Adams is, But perhaps James Forrest knows where John Adams is going to go with this. In other words, no matter how much anger many in Boston have towards the actions of the soldiers and their commanding officer, even those whom are accused of something heinous, they deserve to have their day in court. They deserve to have a fair trial. They deserve to have the right to be represented and to uh, be able to even go as far, if necessary, as testifying in court. Is it fair to say that that what we're uh, leading up to with an upcoming trial, not too far in the near distant future, could be um, could be something that we know of in the uh, first. Um, Ten amendments to the United States Constitution, a.k.a. the Bill of Rights. One of those amendments is the right to a fair and speedy trial. Could it be that what we'll be learning about here soon in the next podcast segment, could it be that with an eventual trial soon to start that uh, we could be learning uh, the, the 101 steps behind what we know today is the right to a fair and speedy trial? I'm beginning to think so. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, episode, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn as to whom will become the lead uh, prosecuting attorney. We're also going to learn how uh, Captain Preston, I'll just tell you this much right now, as I said a moment ago, we're going to learn whom uh, will be the uh, lead prosecuting attorney. We'll also learn uh, how Captain Preston... um, copes with his time in jail, and whether or not he comes up with any kind of uh, schemes that, um, that uh, goes about um, maintaining why he um, engaged in the actions that he did uh, on the night of March 5th, 1770. We'll also learn some other uh, important things uh, in the lead up to the trial. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with you all again here soon. And thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Take care and stay safe.